Welcome to the Team Bath Physio and Sports Science Podcast, hosted by me, James Boyd. Each episode aims to share knowledge, experiences and ideas with the aim of inspiring and motivating you, the listeners. Nothing that you hear on this show should be deemed as medical advice and should be used for entertainment purposes only. So, on with the show. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mr Derek Robinson. Derek is a foot and ankle specialist based in Bath who has particular interest in forefoot surgery, ankle arthritis, sports injuries and complex trauma cases. He undertook his, his orthopaedic training in Bristol and performed a trauma and sports injury fellowship in Vancouver. So, hello Derek. Hello James. And nice, nice, well, nice to be here. <laughs> welcome to the Team Bath and Physio and Sports Science Podcast. Thank you. Uh, I've had the pleasure of hearing you talk before and within our CPD sessions and I'm excited about the wealth of knowledge you can share with us today. But before we get started into the nitty gritty of the foot and ankle, could you tell us a little bit more about where you started and how you've evolved into the specialist foot and ankle consultant you are now? Yes, thanks very much. So um, I initially trained at Manchester University but then I travelled around a bit. I initially did jobs in Manchester, then I taught anatomy for a year at Liverpool University, then I went to Nottingham and Derby for about five years prior to going to Bristol for six years and then I did my fellowships in uh, Vancouver. Um, I guess a lot of people think it's a bit unusual that you want to do foot and ankle surgery. Patients come in and, and uh, question quite why you're doing this when you could be doing something exciting like hips or knees. And I always say that uh, you're really inspired by the people that you've worked for as you come through your training. And I worked for a, a wonderful guy when I was a senior house officer who did foot and ankle and let me do a lot of the operating and that just inspired me at that stage to take an interest in foot and ankle. So that's really why I went down the path of foot and ankle. I think foot and ankle surgery compared with other specialities um, is quite challenging with regards to the diagnosis of the problems, um, the treatment options are very varied. Uh, and uh, there's a wide range of interesting operations that uh, we can perform. So that's, that's where I've come from and quite why I've ended up doing a foot and ankle surgery. Superb, and certainly a very intricate area of the body. Um, yes. It must be quite hard getting to know all the anatomy inside out and becoming very familiar with it. Yeah, there's a, certainly you know, a lot of bones, joints and, and ligaments. And that's the real challenge of foot and ankle surgery. I guess in other joints you're more limited in uh, the number of uh, ligaments and uh, joints available, uh, but with foot and ankle there's a huge number, any of which could be causing the problem. So that's uh, why it's, I find it very challenging and more interesting um, to do foot and ankle surgery. Oh, fantastic. And I hope you don't mind Derek, but I did a little bit of digging around sort of uh, your past when we were agreed to do this. Yep. And I understand you were awarded the European Travelling Fellowship in Foot and Ankle Surgery. Yep. Um, and I'd, I'd never heard of this until I did a bit of Googling, but it sounds like a fantastic educational process. Um, would you mind elaborating a little bit on, on what this was and, and what it involved? Yeah, so as I came to the end of my training, I applied to the British Foot and Ankle Society who, who run a training programme which sends uh, two people per year around, it was four centres of excellence around Europe um, to visit uh, experts in the field of foot and ankle surgery. So I visited uh, Italy, Switzerland and France uh, over a, just a two week period uh, to see how these uh, other uh, countries and surgeons uh, took on foot and ankle surgery. And that was, I did that just as I took up my consultant post in Bath in 2005. Um, and so, certainly from, from the cases that we refer on to you as well, it's often the, the really complicated ones that we send across to you. Yeah. Um, what are some of the more common foot and ankle injuries that come through your clinic doors? So, um, the foot and ankle injuries that I see encompass uh, a whole range of the structures in the foot and ankle. Um, so, that encompasses ligaments, tendons, uh, and the bones and joints themselves. I think the commonest thing that I see um, is sprained ankles that are just not settling down. So typically someone who sprains their ankle uh, will come quite rightly to see a physiotherapist but then if symptoms aren't settling as you would feel appropriate um, then I'm sure you feel and your 
you and your colleagues are, are excellent at knowing when someone's just not responding as you feel they should and at that point you then often refer on to me to look for the possible causes uh, of that. So I think sprained ankles that aren't settling down are the probably number one thing that uh, I get referred to assess. So there's several causes of sprained ankles that aren't settling down, probably five main groups. Um, the first one is uh, chronic instability where there's a rupture of the ligaments and that despite physiotherapy and rehabilitation, uh, the individual continues to have uh, giving way of the ankle. Uh, the other cause, or the second cause, is osteochondral lesions in the ankle where uh, when you sprain your ankle you knock off a piece of cartilage and if you have uh, a damage in the ankle like that, that often leads to more significant symptoms that just can't be resolved with rehabilitation. Another cause is perineal tendon damage or subluxation. Uh, a further cause is a fracture of the anterior process of the calcaneum, which is often missed uh, if the patient attends the uh, emergency department and has an x-ray as it's very poorly visualised on x-ray. And uh, the final cause of a sprained ankle that's not settling or responding is that uh, the injury is to the syndesmotic ligaments rather than the uh, anterior talo and calcaneofibular ligament. So they're the, the five main causes of sprained ankles that really just aren't responding uh, as we'd hope they would. So perhaps we, you'd like to, we can talk about each of those. That'd be great, Derek. So yep. let's, let's start from the top then. So with the, 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 ankle, the lateral ankle sprains, if we're thinking that there's a, a complete rupture there, um, what do we? What would you attribute to the reason why that doesn't set, that that doesn't recuperate, or why they don't rehab as well as they perhaps could? Is it reduced proprioception? Is it just the, the the innate instability that's there, which they can't recover from? It, the more severe the injury, um, the longer it will take to settle down. But uh, in some individuals, I think they just can't regain that proprioception and they just can't over, overcome uh, the instability within the ankle and such that just by walking around uh, they're having ongoing symptoms of uh, giving way. Some people just have pain from the ligaments which uh, we really don't know exactly why that occurs but uh, in some instances they're just more painful than other situations. So, in some instances, it's just time uh, to let that settle, but in individuals who have more significant ruptures, then uh, chronic instability uh, can lead to ongoing problems. And the ones that don't settle down uh, and have chronic instability in the future uh, seem to be the ones uh, that just don't respond uh, quickly at the start. Interesting. Is there any link with things like hypermobility in those which perhaps don't rehab or recover as quickly? Hypermobility patients are a huge problem. Uh, they can have instability and giving way, uh, and when you do an MRI scan, the ligaments are perfect. So it's not often individuals that I see with hypermobility who have ligament injuries uh, that then have the ongoing problems. Um, it's potentially people who have a more normal ankle before that then uh, injures the ligaments that have the ongoing symptoms. Um, I think it's, it's rare for me to see hypermobility patients and people who have hypermobility who then have pain following an injury, when you MRI scan them, their ligaments are often intact and there's really, uh, we struggle uh, to deal with that. Uh, because patients who have hypermobility um, don't generally do well from surgery. Okay. So anyone with hypermobility prior to an injury, I'm going to be very keen to avoid any surgical intervention uh, on those and I would really uh, pursue rehabilitation for uh, probably a much more prolonged period uh, than another individual. Very interesting. And so uh, what's, what's the, what are the reasons behind the hypermobile individuals who don't succeed very or aren't very successful with surgery? I think their tissues are different um, and they're more lax and that even if you tighten the structures uh, back to a more normal uh, tightness um, they then have a tendency to stretch them out again. So anyone 
who is hypermobile, they're just their tissues seem to be different and just prone to uh, stretching and uh, not responding when we want to uh, strengthen them. So if we, if we see somebody come through the clinic uh, who is presenting with a, a possible rupture, yes. what would be your first port of call? Would you, would you go straight to the scan? Would you pursue some rehab, uh, some sort of conservative rehab first? Or what would you want to do? Almost always you go for uh, rehabilitation first. However, if someone is a high level athlete, sportsman or woman, um, then there are, as I've said, several causes that this isn't going to settle down. And for a high level sportsman or woman, you want to identify that as soon as possible. So if there is uh, something such as an osteochondral lesion, in the ankle which is going to stop the individual settling then I think it's important that we know about that as soon as possible to get on with the treatment as soon as possible. So I think for a high level sports person uh, an MRI scan within a few days would be uh, an appropriate course of action for more um, uh, less professional individuals um, a period of rehabilitation is normally the most appropriate way to uh, progress and normally takes uh, four to six weeks um, for you chaps to uh, assess them, treat them and you then get a feeling of whether everything's progressing satisfactorily or not and it's normally around that point that you seem to refer them on um, because you feel there may be something else. So what's interesting about that Derek is at that point where they've had a, sort of a few weeks of rehab and it's not progressing quite as we'd expect it to. When they then come to see you, in your opinion, is that is that too late? Is that a, a nice time span to actually see them? Is what, what are your thoughts on on that timing? I think that's a, a reasonable time because if we lived in a, a perfect world where money was uh, no object whatsoever, then perhaps uh, we would be scanning people earlier. Um, but we have to be uh, sensible with resources and so uh, I feel that that period of rehabilitation is a sensible period um, because otherwise uh, if we were scanning everyone we'd be doing hundreds and hundreds of pointless scans because people would be settling down uh, without any further uh, problems. I mean the, the percentage of people who have chronic problems following an ankle sprain you know, is not high but the fact that there are so many ankle sprains every year means that uh, that will be a huge undertaking. So I think for a normal individual uh, that uh, four to six weeks periods to assess how things are progressing uh, is a sensible course of action. And just whilst we're on the topic of, of in further investigations and scans, what will be your, for both the, the, the ankle sprains and um, osteochondral defects, what will be your gold standard imaging? Uh, MRI scan. It's always always, always uh, an MRI scan is the most appropriate investigation. Um, it's the one I most commonly uh, use around the foot and ankle. Um, yeah. And would there ever be a cause for utilising an X-ray in combination with an MRI, or would you say an MRI would often be in, be enough? Uh, so you normally. Uh, depending on what you believe the problem is, uh, would have an x-ray first. An x-ray is good at excluding uh, fractures, obviously it won't show me uh, cartilaginous lesions in the ankle or ligamentous problems, um, but uh, an x-ray is usually uh, the first and most straightforward investigation of choice, um, but then uh, commonly if that is normal, uh, an MRI scan would be uh, what I would order. Perfect. Moving on to sort of the, the perineal strains and, and tears then, if we're looking at somebody with just, if we take the lateral side, if we're looking at somebody with uh, what we suspect is perhaps grade one, grade two sprain, strain, how would you aim to differentiate between perineal injury or ligamentous injury or a combination of all of those and is there any, are there any particular tests that you would use to reaffirm your diagnosis as such? So what's What's key is um, the examination. The examination potentially comes a bit easier as the weeks go on because you can more easily localise the, the exact site of tenderness. 
So when you twist your ankle, you commonly injure your anterior talofibular ligament, potentially calcaneal fibula, uh, uh, and also you can damage your perineal tendons. And the uh, injury that I'm really interested in that needs to be treated surgically is if you dislocate your perineal tendons. Um, and this can be associated with uh, a severe uh, twisted ankle. And um, the perineal tendons are held down by the perineal retinaculum, the posterior aspect of the, the fibula. And that structure, it doesn't, doesn't tear. What it does, it elevates off its attachment on the fibula. So that leaves a pocket uh, for the perineal tendons to uh, dislocate into. Um, the patients are often very good at telling me that. Uh, they will come in and tell you that they can feel something clicking and flicking around the side of the fibula. Uh, and if they do that, then that is a, a very good sign um, that they have subluxing or dislocating perineal tendons. If they do that, then there's also a risk that certain, particularly the perineus brevis uh, has a tear in it as well. And the more that these tendons dislocate around the fibula, the more chance there is that uh, they will get further damage and further uh, tearing along the length, particularly of the perineus brevis. Uh, and so that's why um, I like to intervene surgically early on. Mm -hmm. uh, Non-operatively, um, in my experience, they don't do well uh, and the perineal retinaculum rarely stabilizes. Uh, and so if you have an acute injury with dislocating and subluxing perineal tendons, uh, I would refer those on uh, and I would then um, suture those, uh, the perineal retinaculum back in place to stabilise the, the tendon. And again, is there a particular time window as such that you would aim to do that or is it just as soon as you feasibly could? Uh, I would do it just as, as soon as possible really. It can be done uh, at any point in the future, um, but the longer you leave it, um, the patient's generally not going to settle down. Uh, and there's more risk that the perineal tendons can become more damaged as the tendons dislocate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, earlier intervention uh, is preferable. Perfect. And so presumably you'd feel uh, some significant tenderness around the, the posterior aspect of the fibula. Are there any other particular tests that you could use to, to guide your diagnosis? Uh, I mean, the patient will often be able to demonstrate perineal uh, dislocation to you by uh, moving their foot around, mm -hmm. uh, but if uh, the test you do is dorsiflex the foot and ask them to either the foot against you and then feel the tendons uh, or see them uh, coming around the side of the fibula, um, you may be able to uh, get hold of the tendons yourselves and push them around the side and compare it to the other side. Um, but uh, for that particular diagnosis, the patient's often very good at uh, demonstrating that themselves to you. And in terms of the mechanism of how they do that, is there, would there be a particular bias in terms of if they're in a sort of plantar grade neutral position or if they're combining with in, uh, plantar flexion or dorsiflexion, is there any pattern there? Uh, I believe from the ones I've seen is that uh, the foot's often more dorsiflexed uh, as they're injuring it. Um, it's more common, I've seen them in professional uh, judo players and uh, sort of rock climbing, people on rock climbing walls seem to be particularly prone to uh, damaging the perineal retinaculum. Very good. So if they've gone through the surgical intervention, uh, what's the, the protocol, what, what typical protocol would you follow from there? Is there a particular time in boot? Is there a particular time of, sort of restricted movement or? For the perineal hmm. tendon subluxations? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so after uh, a surgical repair, um, for that, you really just need to let the tissues heal. I'll, for most uh, surgical conditions, I'll place patients in a temporary backslap, non-weight bed for two weeks just to let the tissues heal. It's always a bit of a balance between immobilizing someone and, uh, and mobilizing them. Um, what's really key in the first two weeks is that the, the tissues heal, the, the skin heals, because if that doesn't heal and we have wound problems, then that's a huge uh, difficulty to us. So I like to rest the tissues for two weeks in a temporary cast, non-weight bearing, um, but and to get the skin healed. Uh, once the skin's healed, uh, I would then generally place the individual in a boot, full weight bearing, um, for a further four weeks. Because so it takes approximately six weeks for that tissue uh, to uh, heal satisfactorily to then push on the rehabilitation.
So two weeks in the back slab, non-weight bearing, and four weeks in the boot, fully weight bearing during the day. If we move on to the, the syndesmotic injuries or the high ankle sprains, are yeah. there, again, are there any particular telltale signs that we would expect to see in clinic? So, if someone's playing rugby and they come in with an ankle sprain, then it just seems to be, for some reason, um, that uh, they are particularly prone to syndesmotic injuries. Um, and so if anyone is injured playing rugby, I just have a very, very high suspicion that that's actually a syndesmotic injury rather than uh, a typical lateral ligament injury. So the findings for that will be a specific tenderness uh, higher over the syndesmosis anteriorly um, rather than over the anterior talofibular ligament region. And that's the most uh, specific test. There are other tests described such as uh, compressing the tibia to the fibula but that's not so um, specific. I'm also interested in if that's associated with medial tenderness. Um, what's important for this, and why the syndesmotic ligament injuries are important is if you have a lateral ligament injury, that's your tail of ligament, and that leads to degree of instability, that can be treated and should be treated with rehabilitation. If you have a syndesmotic injury leading to instability, then that requires surgical intervention and the sooner the better. Um, and so it's important to uh, differentiate that it is a syndesmotic injury and then working out if that syndesmotic injury is stable or unstable. Um, the syndesmosis, as you'll know, is composed of uh, an anterior ligament, posterior ligament, and then the introsseous ligament between the tibia and the fibula. The um, commonest injury is an isolated anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament injury and that usually uh, is associated with um, that the ankle is stable and if that is the case then that does not require surgery that just requires a period of uh, limited weight bearing and then progressive increase in weight bearing uh, in a boot and then rehabilitation so what's important is determining that it is a syndesmotic injury and then determining is it stable or is it unstable? And that is not always very easy to do. So once you're suspicious that it is a syndesmotic injury because of the area of uh, tenderness, then I would examine the individual to determine whether or not I felt there was uh, any abnormal movement of that joint. And uh, what I do is I, I stabilize the, the tibia with one hand, and then I hold the heel with the other hand, and then I try and um, move the talus from a medial to lateral position, um, not an anterior draw, but a side to side movement which would only be possible if the uh, tibia and the fibula uh, were unstable to allow that lateral movement of the talus within the mortise when the foot is up in a neutral position. Um, and so if I can identify uh, that abnormal movement in association with syndesmotic injury, then I'll need to consider whether that needs to be stabilised. Um, prior to that, I would do an MRI scan uh, to more clearly define the extent of the syndesmotic injury, but um, if you have clinical suspicion, an abnormal clinical findings and an MRI scan to confirm it, um, then uh, if that is unstable, uh, I would intervene surgically. I don't think it's, it's not a high percentage that are unstable, um, but it is something that you need to be specifically aware of. If I get a patient with a syndesmotic injury, then uh, they again are very unlikely, if it's unstable, to settle down with conservative measures. And if we take the approach that you're going to see how they go for four to six weeks and then refer them on, then they are still likely to have a satisfactory outcome, but um, the sooner the, the ankle is stabilised, um, uh, the better will be the healing. So I would just um, be very cautious and have a high index of suspicion uh, for syndesmotic injuries. And it's something really to be aware of and look out for, and uh, be cautious of, and something that if you are worried about, then that is something I would refer in earlier because the outcome is better if we intervene 
earlier. Perfect. And just a couple of things to, to, to pick out from that, and Derek, if you don't mind. So, uh, it's interesting you say that it's, it seems to be quite common and there's a high susceptibility of them in rugby players. Yeah. Um, in terms of the mechanism of injury, it's typically with a, uh, a forced external rotation of the foot over a fixed tibia, yeah. or sort of the, the opposite of that, where the foot is fixed and you've got almost an, an internal rotation of the tibia around that fixed foot. Is it if I've got this the right way around? <laughs> I think I have. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so it'd be a, yeah, so you mentioned internal rotation of the tibia around the fixed foot. Yes. Yeah, so it's great, isn't it? And I guess that's that's quite a common. You're in those positions quite significantly in rugby, aren't you? You're you're going into rucks and walls. You're getting hit from the side. Yes. You're getting rotated about a fixed foot yes. on the ground. So that would certainly make sense. Yeah. Um. So that's obviously something that's important to draw from the subjective information as to what happened. Yes. Um. The other thing I wanted to, to pick out from there, um. If patients or if, if clients are delayed in getting to you to, to get that formal diagnosis as such, are there particular things that you then notice as a, as a secondary to the injury? So do, do, you, do you tend to see increased thickening in certain aspects of the ankle? Do you find that there are perhaps secondary complications as a result of a, a syndesmotic injury? If the diagnosis is delayed? Yeah, or if, it's just, if, if they've perhaps just, just carried on without getting any, any, any info. Um, if we miss the diagnosis of a chronic instability, the, the syndesmosis, uh, then the ankle will just never settle down, just never feel right. Um, when an ankle moves abnormally, there's always a risk of cartilage damage, but that uh, would be unusual um, over a, a short-term period of several months or a year. Um, the tissues will scar and um, thicken, which makes the healing process more difficult if they're not addressed um, in the more acute phase. And from a surgical, uh, from a surgical point of view, if there is increased thickening or adhesions or whatever we want to call it, does that make your job more complicated on the table? Uh, it's not in that to stabilise the syndesmosis is a fairly a straightforward procedure. Um, previously we just used to use screws to place um, across the fibula into the tibia. We now often use what's known as a tight rope, which is a device with two metal um, plates on the, on the sides which bind into the sides of the tibia and fibula and are connected with a, a thick non-absorbable uh, suture. And uh, they will be the, the common uh, treatment for a syndesmotic uh, injury to give the ankle stability and allow the tissues to scar in a better position. Um, and so this surgical intervention uh, is not more challenging, it is just that if the diagnosis is delayed then the healing of the tissues is compromised and uh, they may not have such a good outcome. Okay, lovely. So the other thing was the anterior process of the calcaneum fractures. So this is something that I see quite a lot of. Uh, so if someone twists their ankle, along with all the other injuries you can have, what you can do is you, you pull off a small piece of bone at the anterior process of the calcaneum, which is uh, clinically just beyond the insertion of the anterior talofibular ligament. And so for an anterior talofibular ligament injury, you feel the tenderness in front of the fibula about five millimeters to a centimeter further down the foot you have the anterior process of the calcaneum so if someone twists their ankle uh, they can get pain and swelling over the lateral aspect of the ankle uh, and even if they go to uh, accident emergency and have an x-ray they'll often x-ray the ankle which uh, is very very poor at showing this small piece of bone so if there is no tenderness which is just further beyond where you would typically feel uh, a lateral ligament injury, then you just need to be suspicious that they've pulled off a little piece of bone at the anterior process of the calcaneum. And if we diagnose this straight away, then the patient just needs symptomatic treatment and often put in a boot for a few weeks to let it settle. But uh, even in the best of circumstances, this is uh, something that takes a very long time to settle down. And so it's just worth knowing that it is present. Uh, if I see someone early on, I will tell them that there's a very good chance that it will settle, but it can take 18 months to settle down. 
and so if people know that uh, they can understand why their ankle's not settling um, but it does it is just an injury that takes uh, a very long time uh, to settle down and um, it's it's not an injury that requires your services for uh, rehabilitation so if someone has tenderness just slightly more distal uh, than you would anticipate from a typical lateral ligament injury then just be suspicious that they might have pulled a small piece of bone off and that is the cause of their ongoing um, symptoms and then even a normal ankle x-ray um, does not exclude that as a diagnosis. And so are there any particular views of x-ray that would be useful for that or any other investigations that would help to rule that in? Uh, a foot x-ray uh, is uh, the best x-ray to take they take an anterior-posterior foot x-ray and that more clearly shows uh, the small piece of bone on the side of the, uh, the lateral aspect of the calcaneum uh, or an MRI scan again would, would highlight that. Okay, superb. Thank you Derek. Um, so we've, we've gathered a few questions from some of the staff here and some of the listeners to the podcast. Um, I'm just going to reel those up to you if that's alright. Yep. Uh, so what subjective or ob- objective information would lead to you to think that operative management may be more appropriate than conservative? It's quite a widespread question I guess, quite vague. But Yes. Um, so is that related to the entirety of... <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be, but we can go wherever we like. Um, so uh, let's just take one of the most common, a lateral ankle sprain. Is there anything in particular that you would think either subjectively or objectively, the way we, you would uh, either pursue conservative or surgical intervention? So, uh, so for lateral ligament sprain, um, the only indication for very early surgical intervention is if the ankle is grossly, rather wildly unstable. Uh, and that normally only occurs if you've ruptured the anterior talofibula, the calcaneal fibula, uh, and the posterior ligament and that is uh, very uh, unusual. So it's exceptionally rare that I would wish to intervene surgically on a lateral ligament injury uh, without a period of rehabilitation. There are some conditions that just I don't believe will settle with rehabilitation where there's no point in going through a period of rehabilitation such as um, an osteochondral lesion in the ankle um, but uh, it's rare that, that we need to intervene surgically very early on apart from the uh, injuries that I've talked about such as an unstable ankle with syndesmotic injury or an osteochondral lesion or a dislocated uh, perineal tendons. So for the other uh, injuries, uh, a period of rehabilitation is almost always uh, the most appropriate course of action, which will be the vast majority uh, of these ankle injuries. Lovely. And touching on the osteochondral lesions again quickly, Yeah. what, what is the surgical procedure there? So um, an osteochondral lesion is it's a very common uh, when you twist your ankle that you can either um, you, sh- you either shear off uh, a piece of cartilage or even bone on the lateral aspect of the talar dome or you impact the medial aspect of the talar dome. Um, the treatment is an ankle arthroscopy and depending on the size of the fragment uh, you can either fix it back in place or just remove it. Uh, it's rare for the fragments to be so large that they are fixable so uh, almost always we'll do an ankle arthroscopy to just remove the uh, damaged piece of cartilage and bone. Are we, are we aware of the, of the exact causes of what can happen, what can trigger the osteochondral lesions? Is there an, a reduced blood supply to the area? Is it actually just like you say we just have the shearing effect of force through the, the area? Or? So, I mean, osteochondral lesions occur typically on the medial or lateral aspect of the talus. Medial osteochondral lesions, two thirds uh, follow on from an injury, uh, a twisting injury to the ankle, and one third are of spontaneous onset. Uh, we're not fully sure of why those occur. It's possibly a vascular phenomenon, uh, but in two thirds of the medial lesions, uh, there is an, a twisting injury prior to the onset. For lateral osteochondral lesions, then these are almost 100% caused by uh, a twisting injury to 
the ankle. Snakes in. So it's quite a significant proportion that will be will follow on from an element of trauma. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's estimated, you know, potentially five percent of all sprained ankles develop an osteochondral lesion, which um, is, in the great scheme of things, a large number uh, of ankles every year uh, potentially developing uh, an osteochondral lesion. Is there, is there, do you ever have situations where the osteochondral lesion just, just won't heal? If you have a large, if you have a torn piece of cartilage over your ankle, then that will generally not heal. If you have a bigger injury where the bone uh, is fractured, but it is perfectly in place, then uh, that um, should initially be treated with uh, a period of immobilization to allow that chance to heal. Um, these large osteochondral lesions are uh, quite unusual and they're difficult to identify uh, on x-ray. Um, a large osteochondral lesion can be seen on x-ray, um, but um, the more typical injury is a much more subtle and smaller injury. So a bony fracture through the talus um, which is completely undisplaced should be treated non-operatively initially and its own but that is rare uh, and if there is any displaced fragment which is loose uh, then that will cause chronic ongoing symptoms um, and that will need uh, normally excision. Patients with osteochondral lesions complain of uh, a pain, an ache in the ankle which is difficult to localise. So even if it's on the medial or lateral aspect, it's, they just say that something's wrong inside the ankle and it's, it's quite difficult to, to put their finger on it. It's just something doesn't feel quite right inside. And they'll point to, to the front of their ankle um, just say that it feels like it's, it's inside the ankle. Super. And you, would you associate catching, locking, giving way symptoms with those as well? Uh, yes. So any, uh, so it can be that they just feel something's not right and they can't quite pinpoint it, or they could suggest more mechanical uh, symptoms of, of those catching um, and giving way uh, within the ankle. Fab. And so follow, following on from that then, Derek, what conditions would you say or would you find tend to have the best surgical success? Uh, with regards to those that we've talked yeah. about, uh, well, I love doing lateral ligament reconstructions um, because that is a, it's a fun operation and uh, patients generally do very well. Um, you know, historically, um, people used to use um, a split of the peroneus brevis tendon, but that um, led to very tight and stiffened ankle. So now uh, we do what's known as a brostrum repair where we just use the tissue that is there and tighten, tighten it back onto the fibula. Uh, and uh, this generally gives um, very good results. And so I particularly like doing uh, lateral ligament um, reconstructions. Perfect. And that actually follows on to quite a nice question from another one of the listeners. Uh, what are the latest trends in surgical management of the foot and ankle? I was thinking about how my practice has changed over the 11 years since I've been at the RUH and am I doing anything particularly differently now than I was doing um, back then and to be honest I don't think surgically a huge amount has changed over the last 10 or 11 years but I think, I think what has changed um, quite dramatically is how we then um, rehabilitate people um, following injuries we're much uh, more uh, we use much more enhanced recovery programs we, we get people going a lot quicker I think we're a lot more confident in that following the surgery um, we're able to uh, get people rehabilitated in a faster manner uh, and I think that over the last 10 years the particular advances potentially haven't been in the field of surgery but they've been more in the field of physiotherapy and rehabilitation uh, and that that is where um, that is why we're getting um, better results and getting people back to playing uh, quicker um, and so 
I think that that's uh, potentially uh, where our advances and understanding um, has progressed more uh, than potentially in, in the actual surgical treatment over the last 10 years. Fantastic. And, that, and another one which um, has come from one of our staff members here is, would you just be interested to hear your thoughts on, on Liz Frank injuries? Yeah. Um, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit more about uh, sort of the typical mechanisms of how they happen and, and what you then see. So Liz Frank injuries are again really important to identify um, because any instability in the area does need addressing as soon as possible. So as you know the Liz Frank ligament is the ligament runs from the base of the second metatarsal across to the medial cuneiform uh, and a typical uh, mechanism of injury is quite a, a high energy injury but it can occur uh, in any uh, area of uh, sport where um, the foot is twisted. Patients with Lisfranc injuries um, can develop a very bruised swollen foot and certainly any bruising on the, the plantar aspect of the foot is concerning uh, and even though people have x-rays which can appear entirely normal if they've got a big swollen midfoot and any bruising in the plantar aspect you need to be very cautious and aware that uh, they may have disrupted um, the Lisfranc area and that, that may be even if they've been to the accident department and had an x-ray and you're told that it's normal you still have to have a very high index of suspicion and if I see anyone in clinic um, with a big swollen midfoot uh, I'll potentially organise a CT scan um, even if they've got normal x-rays because um, you can often find a huge number of fractures within a foot that are just uh, very difficult to see on an x-ray. So this Franks is something to be very aware of. If someone has uh, an injury to the Liz Frank area or the Liz Frank ligament itself then if it is just uh, a sprain and the foot is stable then um, no surgical intervention is required um, but they will need um, time to settle and then rehabilitation and what's important is deciding if the foot is stable. Uh, if I see someone um, with what I suspect is a, a Liz Frank disruption I'll examine the patient. Um, the key is the second uh, metatarsal base um, as it keys into the cuneiforms and um, what's important is is that stable. Now that should barely move at all and you can compare it to the other side um, and what I do is I hold the uh, midfoot with one hand, my hand stabilizing the middle cuneiform. Uh, I'll then hold the second metatarsal head and then I will move the second metatarsal head up and down. Um, it shouldn't move much at all and you can compare it to the other side and if on comparing it to the other side there's an increased amount of movement of the second metatarsal head when you've stabilized the, the middle cuneiform then that indicates that there is instability um, of the second tarsal metatarsal joint. Um, if there's instability of the second tarsal metatarsal joint then I would generally stabilize that um, and place screws or a plate across the bones in order to regain stability. So I think you need to be very cautious about midfoot injuries, um, particularly Liz Franks. If I treat them early and stabilize them, then the best chance of the best outcome is if you anatomically reduce um, the bones and then stabilize them, and then that gives us the best chance. If I don't operate for eight weeks or more, then um, the chances of having a good outcome are reduced. Um, sometimes you see people who, where this is missed and we're a few months down the line and in that situation it's uh, difficult to uh, reduce the bones and stabilize them and you're potentially then having to talk about a fusion uh, of the joint rather than just um, holding it in place 
uh, and allowing the ligaments to heal, which is clearly uh, a much more major undertaking, something we wouldn't really uh, want to do in uh, potentially uh, a young um, sports person. So a high index of suspicion for anyone with a uh, midfoot injury uh, is necessary. Oh, fantastic, and so it certainly highlights the importance of picking up on these as, as, as quickly as we can, really, as accurately as we can. Yeah. One thing I want to talk to you about, Derek, before before you go, just a big, big area for us here. Uh, we see a lot of Achilles problems, a lot of uh, tendon issues, certainly with runners. Is this a big client group, group that you see as well, or do you tend to not see many of those? Uh, yes, the Achilles tendon is a big problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> there are two types. Mainly of Achilles tendon problems, there's the non insertional and insertional. So, insertional Achilles tendinopathy is something which, whilst I think it's entirely reasonable to try a rehabilitation program, it's something which I believe you will struggle to address as well as the non insertional. So, for insertional, I think you should try and uh, treat them but um, the chances that you'll resolve the situation are uh, lower than with a, a mid-substance problem uh, and in those individuals with insertional problems um, surgery may be uh, indicated. For non-insertional which uh, is probably the majority of people that you see uh, so patients with uh, mid-substance swelling and tenderness and nodule formation then physiotherapy is the mainstay of treatment. I always tell patients with Achilles problems that uh, nothing with the Achilles tendon is fast. Everything just takes uh, a very long time to settle down and they just need to be very patient. Um, so for uh, mid-substance Achilles tendinopathy, I think rehabilitation and uh, working uh, with you is um, the absolute key and um, I tell them that they're going to have to go through a period of at least three months of conservative measures before we would uh, consider any further intervention. I do see quite a lot of people with uh, Achilles tendon problems, uh, Achilles tendonopathy, uh, mid-substance, um, and I normally send them back to you for further treatment. If they've uh, had an extended period of non-operative uh, an appropriate management, um, my next step would be to do um, an injection. I've always been very cautious about using any steroid around an Achilles tendon, but the injection that we use uh, nowadays is known as a high volume saline injection. Um, that is where we, uh, under ultrasound guidance, use uh, a high volume, which is normally between 20 and 40 mils of saline and that is pushed into the space um, just anterior to the Achilles which then strips off the neovascularization of the area and can be very effective in uh, resolving um, the pain and the symptoms from uh, mid-substance Achilles tendinopathy. Uh, so that would be the next step. If that fails then um, we would consider surgical intervention. Uh, for Achilles tendon problems, certainly mid-substance and certainly I try and avoid uh, surgery, uh, occasionally it's necessary. Um, the surgical treatment um, is normally uh, just exposing the tendon and then cutting into the mid-substance to remove the uh, degenerate section. Um, and that has a, a positive outcome in about 70% of cases. So it's certainly something I would avoid doing if at all possible. Um, Achilles tendinopathy is something that I'm going to keep referring back to you because you are the best people um, to treat that. Um, the other um, surgery which is becoming more popular for Achilles tendon problems is a release of the medial head of the gastrocnemius where we just uh, release the fascia over the top, over the uh, medial head of the gastrocnemius, um, just um, distal to the knee. Uh, and this uh, releases the tension in the area and uh, is the operation that uh, we do for patients with Achilles tendon uh, problems um, but also for plantar fasciitis if, if we ever feel that um, we can't resolve plantar fasciitis then a, a medial head of gastrocnemius release will be the surgical uh, option uh, but again uh, we certainly try and avoid any surgical intervention for plantar fasciitis if 
at all possible. Fantastic, and a great wealth of information there. One thing I'm interested to know is uh, over the last couple of years there's certainly been an increased wealth of, of research and evidence base behind the plantaris involvement in Achilles in, in perhaps um, slow rehabbing Achilles to injuries. Do you, if you scan or if you, if you just from your investigations, do you find that that has an much involvement in what you've seen? The plantaris uh, tendon, as you know, is a very small tendon that runs down the medial side of the Achilles, and there has been interest in the orthopaedic world as to why certain patients uh, develop pain with an Achilles tendinopathy and some have no pain. It's been hypothesized that it's something to do with the different strength and strain placed between the plantaris and the Achilles. Um, I've never been hugely convinced about the role of the plantaris in the development of pain and symptoms around an Achilles tendon. If I'm operating on the area, uh, I do uh, remove a section of it, um, but um, I struggle to uh, connect uh, symptoms of, uh, around the Achilles with uh, pathology of the plantaris tendon. So what would be the reasoning for removing part of it? Uh, purely because you're there, um, the plantaris has a possible uh, theoretical, uh, is a possible theoretical source of the symptoms uh, and that there'll be no functional deficit if you do uh, remove uh, a section of it. So it's, um, as you're there, it's a very simple thing to do and uh, I don't know whether or not it will be beneficial or not. I just remove a, a small section of it. And is that fairly common practice? Or and, and the reason I ask that is, have you always done that, or has that changed over the recent years? And have you noticed any difference with the outcomes? Or? No, I mean, as I say, I'll certainly I'll avoid operating on these tendons if at all possible. So it's not that uh, I do a lot of these operations to know the difference. Some people just treat this by cutting the plantaris, um, but I can't um, convince myself that um, that would be a good operation um, to resolve um, the symptoms um, of this condition. Okay, lovely. And then one more, one more, uh, one more area just to get your thoughts on, um, it's, it's just the area of pronation. So we still see a vast number of clients and athletes that come in with various injuries and ailments and report that they have been told that they overpronate and that this is the cause of their injuries. Um, they often believe that they will need to avoid pronation to alleviate their symptoms and with the emphasis of anti-pronation running shoes and lots of information online that supplements this almost this fear avoidance of it, um, it's become quite tricky in trying to, re trying to educate that pronation is a natural movement and that it's required. Um, so I was just wondering what your thoughts are on, on that, the, the, the topic of overpronation. So I think that feet and ankles are exceptionally complex and uh, an assessment of pronation or overpronation itself is very challenging. There's a, a huge number of conditions that affect the biomechanics of the foot. What I see is a lot of people who come in who've been told that they're normally flat-footed and that they need insoles to treat this. When I look at their feet I see a normal foot. I see someone who may have a, a slightly flattened arch, but to me that is just on the normal spectrum uh, and that there's nothing wrong with their feet uh, whatsoever and they shouldn't really have been told that they had an abnormality in their feet and they shouldn't um, be wearing insoles um, and so feeling that there is something wrong with their feet when to me they've just got absolutely perfectly normal feet. So I think there is uh, a bit of an overdiagnosis that uh, someone with uh, an over a pronated foot that that is in some way abnormal when uh, I don't believe that it is. I think that the very assessment of a foot to tell someone that it's over pronating is very challenging um, and so 
I think um, that to diagnose someone with overpronation and to then tell them what sort of shoes they should wear uh, is potentially, um, well, may potentially cause more problems. Um, overpronation, I think, could potentially, potentially cause other symptoms and may potentially benefit from a certain type of shoe or a certain type of insole. Um, but I think that initial uh, prescription um, is quite challenging and difficult to be absolutely sure of uh, in the first instance. Absolutely. And would you often compare side to side or would you just look at the, the, both as a whole or how would you tend to assess that yourself? I mean, this is something that we would rarely, um, I mean, this is not something that in the orthopaedic world we talk about a lot. Okay. Uh, you probably talk about it all the time. <laughs> it becomes <laughs> an interesting conversation, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, I think uh, when you're assessing a foot and ankle, you of course need to um, assess um, both sides and then you need to work out quite why someone um, is potentially um, overpronating and, and you know there are huge you know you need to work out the diagnosis um, as to why someone is doing something uh, in order to um, treat it um, rather than just um, saying someone is overpronating and therefore they require um, a certain running shoe or insole um, you need to work out quite um, why this is happening and then treating the original problem rather than um, just prescribing um, a shoe or, or insole. And then would there be any typical pathologies or injuries that you may find that overpronation really feeds heavily into? I'm just wondering about perhaps your plantar fasciitis and things like that, if, or even Achilles problems, if, if there's a big link there, or if that's perhaps no, no, no real pattern that you've seen. I don't, I, I don't think there's a pattern. I've not seen um, any pattern uh, with regards to um, those injuries. I know sort of overpronation is blamed on um, all sorts of things, shin splints, knee pain, plantar fasciitis, Achilles, bunions, all sorts, um, but from what I see, uh, I don't see that patients who you may perceive as overpronating, um, that that is the cause for those, but as I say, this is probably an area where you're infinitely more educated or knowledgeable and discuss this far more than um, me as an orthopaedic surgeon um, would do. That's great, thank you Joe. And finally then, with a lot of the people, a lot of our listeners will be physios and strength and conditioning coaches and so on. Yeah. Are there any, perhaps two or three top things that you would, in terms of words of advice that you would give us for when perhaps we should pass forwards to you? I think you need to be aware of um, the conditions that uh, need early surgical intervention and I've probably mentioned um, a few of them today, probably most of them today um, and it really is and the early surgical interventions are those uh, ligamentous ruptures leading to instability um, that um, will not settle with time and will just get more difficult to treat, particularly the Liz Franks and the syndesmosis and so I think uh, just having a, a high index of suspicion uh, for those injuries which you really need to pick up early um, and if you know those uh, then I think you'll be in a very good uh, position to feel more confident that you can carry on your um, treatments and rehabilitation um, and you're not going to be missing uh, anything that needs uh, an acute intervention. Fantastic. Well, a huge wealth of information there for our listeners. Um, Derek, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy diary to, to be here today. Really appreciate it, and um, it would be great to have you on at any time in the future. So thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, James.